Good morning. Welcome. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of, uh, of prayer as you make your way in. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for a new day and, uh, and new mercies. And, uh, and so uh, we pray that you would help us as we, uh, as we uh, consider the past, as we look back and uh, consider your, uh, your works and how you are uh, bringing about uh, your uh, redemptive plan and uh, throughout history. And, uh, and so you pray, I pray that you would, uh, would just uh, encourage uh, and edify us as we, as we look back at uh, this pivotal season in, uh, in the life of the church, the, the time of the Reformation. So pray that you would bless us this morning and help us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, welcome to the, uh, to the Reformation. If you have been with us over the past uh, five months or so, then you have endured uh, you've endured these uh, twists and turns uh, with uh, crazy popes and uh, crusades and bubonic plague and heretics and emperors and church councils and all those kinds of things. And now we finally made it to the 16th century that is the Reformation. So well done. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, thanks for persevering. And last week we talked about the man who lit the match of the Reformation, that's Martin Luther. This week we wanna talk about the Reformation itself, which is obviously much larger than just one German uh, monk. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to attempt at least to answer these six questions. What is the Reformation? What were the factors leading to reform? How did the Reformation start? How many reformers and reformations were there? What were some of the theological distinctives of the Reformation? And then what were some of the other more practical effects of the Reformation? So we'll start with the definition. What is the Reformation? Well, the Reformation is one of those things that's easier to kind of describe than it is to define. You see the effects of it, but actually coming up with a, uh, a solid definition is difficult. In fact, uh, I found it uh, strange how difficult it was to find a really good definition uh, in, uh, in my studies. I spent some time doing that, couldn't find one. Zach spent some time looking at that, couldn't find one. So we just made up our own. So take that, Webster. And uh, so here it goes. You have this in your notes. And so this is just our attempt at coming up with a, a helpful definition of the Reformation. The Reformation was the 16th century theological movement that sought to reform. That's the word Reformation there, reform apparent corruption in the Roman Catholic Church by appealing directly to scripture and early tradition, but which, which eventually divided the church into Roman Catholic and Protestant uh, expressions. That's what we're talking about today. But if you're going to understand what happened in the 16th century with the Reformation, you need to know what was happening in the immediately preceding centuries. You need to know something about the historical context. So what were the factors leading to reform? This is a, a bit of summary. We talked about this uh, already. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Jared's teaching from a couple of weeks ago called The Rumblings of Reform. And, uh, and so uh, in general, he talked about at least four main factors that kind of led to the, uh, the Reformation, that kind of put kindling around what will eventually erupt when, uh, when Luther lights the match in the 16th century. And so those factors leading to reform, again, four of them, the first one being theological and moral corruption of the church and the papacy. We did an entire lesson on that a few weeks back, so if you, again, if you didn't hear that, go back and listen to it, but you have all of these crazy things that happen in the immediately preceding, preceding centuries uh, to the Reformation. You have popes that are actually murdering other popes. You have popes having illegitimate kids. You have a time period in which there's three popes all at once, and they're all claiming to be the real pope. You have absenteeism, simony, indulgences, and so forth. It's like an episode of Jerry Springer, if that's not a dated uh, reference. There is a sense, uh, and we talked about this, there's a sense in which the Dark Ages is kind of a, a misnomer. It's a bad nickname for the medieval period because there's a lot actually, of cultural and intellectual advancement that you see in Western Europe during the Middle Ages. But there's also another sense in which it kind of is appropriate as it relates to the church, as it relates to the moral and theological corruption of the church. 
So this uh, corruption in the church leads to the second factor for reformation, which is the existence of these pre-reformers. We talked about that, guys like John Wycliffe, who's called the morning star of the Reformation, and guys like John Huss, who saw these excesses, they saw all of these abuses, they saw the corruption in the medieval church uh, in the, uh, the later Middle Ages, and they were these prophetic voices for reform. That's the second factor. The third factor is the Renaissance. Now, when we think of the Renaissance today, we tend to think of art, especially by all of those artists with uh, Ninja Turtle names, right? Michelangelo and Leonardo and so forth. And that's certainly true. You have Michelangelo, he's painting the Sistine Chapel in this time period. Da Vinci is painting uh, the Last Supper and the Mona Lisa. All of that is taking place during the Renaissance, but it's also a period of this, uh, this great geographical discovery. This is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. This is when Magellan is circumnavigating the globe. And so you have all of this, uh, this period of geographical discovery and then also scientific discovery with guys like Copernicus and then Galileo who's a bit later. And then one of the rallying cries of the Renaissance is this phrase ad fontes. Ad fontes, which means to the sources. Let's go back, let's go back to ancient culture and, uh, and that Renaissance slogan, that idea of, of ad fontes will fuel the Reformation as well. You see, the reformers don't think that they are dis- doing something new. Their, their goal is not discovery, their, their goal is instead recovery. It's the opposite of the way that we think today in our postmodern sort of view in which uh, truth and, uh, and good is something in the future. Historically, uh, culture would say that truth and goodness is something from the past that we need to get back to. And, uh, and so that's what the reformers are doing. They're not trying to do something new, they're trying to get back. They're trying to get back before all the corruption of the Middle Ages. They're trying to get back to guys like Augustine, even back to, to the Apostle Paul or to the gospel itself. And, and they're better to, uh, equipped to do so given that during the Renaissance there is this revival of the Greek text in the Renaissance. And with that revival, with the kind of the rediscovery of the importance of the biblical languages, in particular Greek, um, there, there is this realization that some of the theological traditions are based on faulty translations. Some of the theological uh, traditions that have kind of grown up in the church are based on faulty Latin translations. For instance, whereas the Greek text uh, would say that we should repent and repentance is going to be a, a fuel for the Reformation, the, the Latin text actually says that we should do penance. And so there is this rediscovery of biblical truth in light of the fact that there are these better translations. In fact, not translations, but actually the getting back to the original Greek text. So this rediscovery of the ancient languages and the church fathers will fuel the Reformation, as will historical circumstances. That's the last factor that I wanna talk about. For instance, when we talked about the Crusades, if you remember that, We mentioned that the last attempt by a pope to raise a crusade was in what year? Anybody remember? It's actually 1517, the exact same year that Martin Luther is going to nail his theses to a church door. That's the last time that there's an attempt to raise a uh, crusade. Why is that important? Well, because the pope is going to be a bit preoccupied. He's thinking about the Crusades. He's thinking about the fact that the Turks are advancing upon the Holy Roman Empire. And so he's a little preoccupied and doesn't realize that this German monk named uh, Luther is a huge problem for the church until it's already too late. So the virus of the Reformation had already spread by the time that the papacy turns its attention to it. And mostly it had spread because of another sort of coincidental little historical circumstance called the printing press, right? Had Luther, had the other reformers, had they lived just a a generation or two earlier, the Reformation might never have occurred. Similar to the way that Wycliffe and John Huss and so forth had attempted to change the church, but they didn't have any traction. But Luther just so happened to be born in the first generation after the invention of the printing press in Europe and in the very country in which it was invented. Before that, it would have taken weeks to produce one book. With a printing press, you could produce uh, 3,600 pages a day. And this fuels the idea of the spread uh, of ideas like uh, never before in history. So you might think of the, uh, the rumblings of reform as being like these little bitty tectonic shifts that predict this future earthquake. But how these centuries of birth pangs finally give birth uh, in the Reformation is what we wanna talk about as we talk about how did the Reformation start. 
And we said before, to understand what's happening in the 16th century in the Reformation, you need to understand what's happening in the uh, previous centuries. What's happening in particular, let's back up all the way to the 14th century papacy. All right, we talked before, when we talked about the papacy, that the 13th century is the absolute apex, the pinnacle of papal power in Europe. All right, that's the 13th century. By the 14th century, we see it all begin to unravel. This is all review. But in the 14th and 15th centuries, there is this time that's called the Avignon Papacy, where you have seven consecutive popes who live not in, uh, in uh, Rome or the Vatican City or Italy or anything like that. They instead live in a place called Avignon in France. And that takes place for a total of about 70 years. It's sometimes called the Babylonian exile of the church. And then immediately after that, so immediately after spending 70 years where the papacy has been moved uh, to France, immediately after that, there's this 40-year period called the Great Schism, in which there are initially two, and then eventually as many as three different men who were all elected pope at the exact same time. They're all vying for primacy, all vying for validity. So that's the historical context. As you can imagine, the papacy survives this 110-year period but it's greatly weakened as a result. The people don't know who or where the Pope is for most of the 14th and 15th centuries. Then, the very beginning of the the 16th century, in 1505, the Pope at the time, Pope Julius II, he decides that he wants to beautify and to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. So he did what every good pastor does, right? What does a good pastor do when he wants to do a building campaign? He put this giant thermometer on the stage, right? and said, we want to raise this much money. But people didn't know what a thermometer was because it hadn't been invented yet. So he said, well, we have have to have another idea. And that idea was indulgences. What are indulgences? We might think of them as kind of purgatory coupons, right? 30% off from your time in uh, purgatory. Remember, purgatory in Roman Catholic theology isn't a place, uh, uh, it, it isn't hell. Purgatory isn't a place for unbelievers. Unbelievers go to hell. Purgatory in Roman Catholic theology is for believers. It's for people like you and uh, me. It's a place where you go to be purged, purgatory. You're to be purged of your remaining sin. So purgatory had been actually been a part of Roman Catholic theology for millennia. In fact, you see uh, Augustine even reference it. But in the medieval period, you begin to have the idea of the church as being this dispenser uh, of what's called the treasury of merits, the treasury of merits. So you give the Pope some money, and in return, he gives you some merits. And those merits can be applied towards purgatory, either for yourself or for a loved one or whatever it might be. And one of the best purgatory, uh, one of the best indulgent salesmen of the time is a guy named Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel. It's really important that you understand him as it, uh, as it relates to the Reformation. He was the Dwight Schrute of indulgence preachers, right? He's the used car salesman of indulgences. No offense if you're a used car salesman. But Tetzel had these uh, powerful rhetorical techniques. He would tell the audiences, he would tell the people in the congregation, he would say, put your ears to the floor and listen. And then he said, do you hear that? Those are the screams of your relatives as they're being tormented in purgatory. How dare you sit there with coins in your pockets while your grandmother is being tortured? So that's a powerful technique, right? People do that still today, right? You probably have heard some preachers on TV that do that kind of thing. So he had these powerful techniques. Not only that, but he had these really catchy sales hooks. Like every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And those who uh, purchased his indulgences, he said they would be, quote, cleaner than Adam before the fall. Even if you had violated, that's a uh, euphemism, even if you had violated the Virgin Mary herself. Though whenever push comes to shove, he denied that he ever actually said that because I think he took it a little bit too far. And he said his indulgences would even cover future sins. It's kind of like a get out of a jail free car that you just keep until you need it. One of my favorite stories might not be true, but it might be. Uh, Luther actually tells it was that someone actually once took Tetzel up on this offer of a a indulgence for a future sin. He purchased an indulgence for some sort of future sin. 
And, uh, and then the next day, that same guy who had purchased the indulgence from Tetzel attacks Tetzel on his way out of town and stole all of Tetzel's money, including the money that this guy had paid for the indulgence. And then when that guy was dragged before the authorities, what do you think he said? I paid for it, right? That's the future crime. That's the future sin. And, uh, and so he got off scot-free. Again, I don't know if that actually happened, but Luther wrote it, and it's funny. So that's Tetzel. And he's actually right down the road from Luther. He can't actually go into the area where Luther is. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, some historical circumstances for that, but he is right down the road. In fact, in 1517, Tetzel was preaching in a town just about 25 miles or so from Wittenberg, which is where Luther is. Now, Zach talked about Luther last week. I thought it was excellent. You should go back and listen to it if you didn't hear it. But Luther was originally studying to become a lawyer but he got really scared in a storm and he promised to become a monk and that was that. So in 1515, he's a monk, he's about 31 and he begins lecturing on the book of Romans. He's also been studying Psalms. But in the book of Romans, he runs across the phrase, the righteousness of God, dikaiosune feu. And he sees this not just once or twice, but all over the epistle. And he originally thinks that this is bad news. He thinks that the righteousness of God refers to the justice of God in condemning unjust sinners. We're unjust, so God is just, God is righteous, and so his justice demands that we be damned. That's what he originally thinks of the righteousness of God, so he's very afraid of that phrase, but then he has this theological epiphany of sorts. He says he grabbed hold of Paul and wouldn't let him go until he understood what was meant by theu, by the righteousness of God, and he eventually realizes that the righteousness of God isn't God's righteous judgment against unjust sinners, but rather God's righteous justification of unjust sinners. And this epiphany, this realization, is the spark that ignites the Reformation. Luther says this about this experience, I felt that I'd been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of scripture gained a new meaning and from that point on, the phrase, the righteousness of God no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. So this is all bubbling up in Luther's heart. This is just a year or two before uh, 1517. This is all bubbling up in his heart, but at this point, he's actually still just a good Catholic. But then he hears about Tetzel. His friends, his acquaintances are traveling to hear Tetzel and they're coming back with these outrageous indulgences. And this is particularly outrageous to Luther because many of these people are poor. Many of these people are spending money that could be spent on food or clothing or something like this. And instead, they're spending the last bits of their money on this worthless piece of paper. There's a scene in the movie Luther, if you've ever seen that, where uh, this, little, this poor little girl, she spent her last penny on an indulgence and she's so proud of it and she's so happy and you see this sadness and anger in Luther's face as he walks away. So he decides some po to post some theses on the church door. Anyone know how many? Some said 94, some said 95. Both of those are actually wrong. The answer is actually 97. But nobody cares. Nothing happens. So a few late weeks later, he decides 97 was too many, I'm gonna do it again. October 31st, 1517, he posts an entirely different set of theses. Actually, the first theses were, uh, were more incendiary than the second, but on Halloween or Reformation Day, uh, 1517, he posts 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, and that event is typically seen as the formal start of the Reformation. Though again, at this point, Luther is not a Protestant. He's just a voice crying out for reform of some Catholic excesses, as many Catholics were doing in this period. And this is really important to realize because the spirit of the Reformation consists in this phrase, semper reformanda. Semper reformanda. Anybody know what that means? Always reforming, right? The Reformation isn't simply one event, it's a movement. Luther's views are going to change over time. In fact, if you read the thing that, uh, if you read the kind of the timeline of the Reformation, you'll see he gets more and more bold. And, uh, and, and if you read the beginning and then you read the end, you see how he advances in his, uh, his theology. Uh, and so Luther's views change over time and then there's this snowball effect 
as other reformers begin to take these ideas and run with them. In other words, in 1517, Luther's got 95 problems, but the Pope ain't one, right? In fact, one of his uh, goals is actually to alert the Pope to all of these abuses. He hears what Tetzel is doing, and he says, ooh, I'm telling Papa, and you're gonna be in trouble. The problem is that Daddy is preoccupied with building a new cathedral. He's preoccupied with trying to, to prevent a war or to at least start a new crusade against the Turks if they uh, attack uh, the uh, Holy Roman Empire. And the Pope is actually pretty cool with the indulgence abuses and many of the so-called corruptions. So after a series of debates, Zach talked about that last week, uh, Luther is excommunicated, but he's not the only reformer. All right, we've already talked about pre-reform movements with guys like Wycliffe and Huss, but in the Reformation itself, there isn't just one unified monolithic Reformation movement. This is really important to understand. There isn't just one Reformation. There are actually a handful of Reformations, plural, with a lot of commonalities, but also some pretty significant differences. You have the German Reformation, that's led by guys like Luther and Melanchthon. You have the Swiss Reformation with guys like Zwingli and Calvin. You have the English Reformation, which leads to Anglicanism, which is basically just Roman Catholicism, but with a different pope, because the king wanted to get divorced. You have something called the Radical Reformation with guys like the Anabaptists. And then lastly, there's actually a counter-revolution uh, in the uh, Catholic Church itself. They recognize that there's, uh, there is some impurity in the church, and so they seek to make a few adjustments. So there's actually a sense in which there's five different reformations taking place, but in general, when we talk about the Reformation today, we generally just mean the German and Swiss and maybe even English reformations that uh, result in Protestantism. Things like Lutheranism, the Reformed tradition, Anglicanism, and then most of the other denominations that we see today. We've talked about Luther already. We'll talk about Calvin next week. We'll talk about the Anabaptists and other radical reformers and the counter-reformation a couple of weeks after that. We'll talk about the English Reformation in coming weeks, but there's one guy that's pretty important. We don't have a space for in the coming weeks. We need to talk about him uh, now. His name is uh, Ulrich Zwingli, all right, Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was born on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1484. He's uh, born about two months after Luther and uh, he's born in Switzerland. And he receives an education that's a little bit unlike Luther's. Luther's education is much more medieval, uh, and uh, Zwingli, though, is getting much more of the uh, kind of a more modern education uh, with the, uh, the humanist. And, uh, and so he receives an education in Basel, Bern, and in Vienna, and he becomes priest at the age of about 22 in, uh, in 1506. And then in 1518, he moves to Zurich where he served as priest at the Grossmünster. In fact, you can go to Zurich today and you can see the Grossmünster, which literally just means big church because it's a really big church. And by then, by uh, 1518, uh, he was already beginning to question many of the theological assumptions of medieval Catholicism. So he's a Catholic priest, but he's beginning to question a lot of these, uh, these assumptions of medieval Catholicism. So when an indulgence preacher passes through Zurich, Zwingli actually convinces the city council to expel him. And then he turns his attention to papal excesses and abuses. And around this exact same time that Zwingli is beginning to think about papal excesses and abuses, around 1521, Luther, meanwhile, was standing up to imperial authority at the Diet of Worms, right? The place where he says uh, that he refuses to recant. And then people begin to notice that these two guys, Zwingli and Luther, are saying a lot of the same things. Interestingly enough, neither at this point are actually influenced by the other. They're simply similar simultaneous movements that are uh, happening in parallel, and, uh, and so that's really interesting. And so in 1522, a group of students in Zurich held a party, and because they're Germans, or at least Germanic, they, uh, they really want to serve sausages. But it's during Lent. You can't serve sausages during Lent. You can only eat f- uh, veggies and fish. And so the kids were, uh, were told they can't do that. But they did it anyway, and they were fined as, as a result. So Zwingli, he intervenes, and he says this. He says, the Bible doesn't say anything about sausages, and the Bible doesn't say anything about Lent. And the council says, you know what? You're actually kind of right. 
And so they uh, took away the fine and didn't punish the kids after all. And this is a huge win because it demonstrated this principle that we'll see in the Reformation that scripture could actually correct tradition. That we'll see that as a major theological development of the Reformation. Now the Swiss Reformation that's led by Zwingli and the German Reformation led by uh, Luther had a whole lot in common. So it seemed like it might be a great idea to just kind of combine their efforts into one larger movement. So they attempted to actually do just that at the Marburg Colloquy of uh, 1529. And in the context of that meeting, when Luther and Zwingli and some others get together, they discussed 15 theological distinctives. 15 different theological distinctives. They actually agree on 14 of them, which sounds great. That's like 93%. That's a solid A. But the one thing they couldn't agree on was what? Anybody remember? Communion. They couldn't agree on communion. They were so entrenched in their views, Zwingli wouldn't change, Luther wouldn't change. They were so entrenched in their views that any talk of union ended. What's really interesting is that up to that point, Zwingli had deeply, deeply respected Luther. He said of Luther, here indeed you were the only faithful David anointed hereto by the Lord. Luther, however, said that Zwingli was, quote, of the devil and nothing but a, quote, wormy nut. And he later wrote, I wish from my heart that Zwinglius could be saved, but I fear the contrary, for Christ has said that those who deny him shall be damned. Here's what's really fascinating. If you were to ask Luther whether Catholic transubstantiation or Zwingli's memorial view of communion was worse, he would say Zwingli's is worse. Luther viewed the, the Roman Catholic position of transubstantiation as an error, but he viewed Zwingli's view as heresy. He actually said, I would rather drink pure blood with the Pope than mere wine with Zwingli. As we said last week, Luther is great, but nuance and tact, not exactly his gifts. As you can imagine, Zwingli was rather shocked by this. He's so offended by Luther's condescension that they never personally reconciled. And this is why, this is part of the reason at least, why Lutheranism is so different from the rest of Protestantism today. By the way, I don't think that Luther or Zwingli was right about communion or the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin's view is actually much better. We've talked about that before in the past uh, in a theological equipping called Communion in Church History. So you can go back and listen to what we said about that. But that's Zwingli. In addition to him, if we had time, we'd talk about some of the other reformers that are lift, listed in your notes. They're all really important, but we need to turn our attention to the theological distinctions of the Reformation. All right. As we said, one of the mottos of the Reformation was ad fontes. What does that mean again? To the fount or to the sources, right? Both the original languages of scripture themselves and to the church fathers. I want you to imagine a window, imagine a window that's been covered by the grime and filth of centuries of corruption. That's what the reformers thought of as the, as the church. So they thought their job was simply to clean the window. They don't view their job as creating a new window. They simply need to clean the existing one. But the result was that what was once nearly opaque as a result of this millennia of theological grime was suddenly much more transparent. Now all of a sudden, concepts like grace and faith could shine through that window. They could be seen through that window, which led to another motto of the Reformation in general, and to the city of Geneva, uh, in, uh, in particular where Calvin labored, uh, and that, uh, that motto is post tenebras lux, which is Latin for after darkness light. After this period of theological darkness, there is suddenly uh, light. Now we've seen there wasn't merely one monolithic reformation, or that there's a series of reformations, plural, that are all interacting with each other and building upon each other like a snowball effect. They're all attempting to reform the church from within. So since there's not just one movement in the later ages, scholars begin to look backwards and say, what were the unifying themes? So in the 20th century, Reformation scholars, as they looked back at all these different Reformation movements and they said, what were these unifying themes? They settled on what are called the five solas. The five solas, for, uh, which is Latin for alone. 
So these are all modern attempts to succinctly summarize the various streams of the Reformation. In other words, if you were to ask Luther what he thought of the five solas, he wouldn't have any clue what you meant. These are, these are modern uh, looking back and saying what are the unifying themes. But these are the, the, uh, really a summary of the essence of the Reformation. Those five solas are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and sola Deo gloria, all right? Let's start with sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Again, that word sola is gonna be in all of it. Sometimes it's solus or soli, depending on the, uh, the noun tense and so forth. But sola scriptura, the principle of sola scriptura is often referred to as the formal cause of the Reformation, the formal cause of the Reformation, because every other part of Reformation theology flows from this commitment to the word of God as the fundamental principle of theological reflection. When we think of the Reformation today, we typically think of the Reformation as a rediscovery of the message of grace and of justification by faith, and it certainly was that. But you might even say that the reordering of authority and the subjugation of tradition to scripture was actually even more influential. Why was that? Because you can only recover concepts like grace and justification by faith by appealing to scripture. Unless you actually have a restored view of scripture, you can't actually then have these authoritative views of the implications of scripture, like justification of faith and so forth. It's kind of like conversations about uh, race today, right? You have some Christians who seem willing to kind of give up on scripture, to embrace some sort of non-biblical presupposition in order to fight racism, whereas we would say that, uh, that they've actually given up the only weapon by which you can actually reform racists, that you can actually defeat racism, which is the word of God. And that was the case in the Reformation as well. Arguing over justification uh, by, uh, by grace through faith goes nowhere unless you first establish the first principle, which is the doctrine of, uh, of scripture. You have to first establish what is your ultimate authority. Is it tradition or is it scripture? With the restoration of the primacy of scripture, all of the other theological developments were dominoes that were bound to fall. We've talked before about how the question of authority had been brewing in the Roman Catholic Church during the 14th and 15th century. We talked before about the great schism in which there's multiple popes at once. It would have been great if they would have taken part in some sort of battle royale to settle it, to kind of have one pope to rule them all, but they didn't. And the problem uh, so they, instead they call this council to solve the issue. The problem is none of the popes recognized the council and so it just became this circle. So the Roman Catholic Church was thrown into chaos with the question of authority. Was ultimate authority in the church, was it vested in church councils or was it vested in the pope himself? Or, as the reformers would say, was it vested in scripture and not the church or the councils? And the Roman Catholic Church at this time and today held to a dual source theory in which scripture and tradition are seen as equal, technically, but there's this subtle catch. And that subtle catch is the fatal flaw to the Roman Catholic view. That subtle catch is that the church is the one that must define and interpret scripture and tradition. So technically, scripture and tradition are equal authorities. Technically, that is the case. But the church is the one who holds the key to unlock them both. So realistically, scripture is actually subject to tradition. Scripture is actually subject or subjugated to the magisterium, that's the teaching authority of the church. For example, in response to the 95 Theses, one of Luther's opponents wrote this, he who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and pontiff, that's the Pope of Rome, as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. Notice that the scriptures draw their strength and authority from what? From the church and from the Pope, right? So there's this subjection or this subjugation or this reversal or inversion. But for the reformers, sola scriptura did not mean that the church, did not mean that its official summaries of scripture, the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms, it didn't mean that those had no authority at all. There's a difference between solo scriptura in sola scriptura, the reformers didn't say that scripture was the only authority. Lots of other things are authoritative. The government, parents, 
employers, natural laws, science, all of these kinds of things are authoritative in a sense. So the Reformation argument wasn't that Scripture was the only authority, but that it was the ultimate authority, that it alone was the ultimate authority. It's the standard by which everything else must be judged and which itself is not judged. The fancy uh, theological term for that is the norma normans non normata. It's the rule of faith which rules all other rules. So according to the, the reformers, tradition has authority, but it's ministerial authority that's derived from and that's dependent upon the magisterial authority of Scripture. Scripture is the master, the church and its uh, tradition is the minister. Well, why is that? Well, we see a clue in Luther's response at the Diet of Worms. You might remember this, uh, it's a very famous thing that he says there. He says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for for I do not trust in either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I've quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. So for Luther and for the other reformers, the sola, the sola of sola scriptura was inseparably related to the attribute of scripture, uh, that is its uniqueness. It was because popes and councils could and did err that, pope, uh, that, that Luther instead exulted in the supremacy of scripture. Luther wasn't saying that I despise church authority, nor was he saying that I repudiate church councils as having no value but he did subjugate their value to the greater value of scripture. So the Reformation isn't this repudiation of tradition. You're gonna see that happens later, but that's not what the Reformation is about. It's rather a reorientation of the order of tradition uh, in respect to scripture. Luther says this, the church was born by the word of promise through faith and by this same word is nourished and preserved. That is to say, it is the promises of God that make the church and not the church that makes the promise of God. For the word of God is incomparably incomparably superior to the church, and in this word, the church being a creature has nothing to decree, ordain, or make, but only to be decreed, ordained, and made. For who begets his own parent, who first brings forth his own maker? In other words, the word of God makes the church and not vice versa, which was the Roman Catholic view. What's fascinating is that this is all happening at the same time that the printing industry is being revolutionized, the Bible's being translated into the vernacular, the lingua franca, the common tongue. So this is the first time that the Bible is actually able to be proliferated. At the exact same time, there's this recovery of the idea of sola scriptura. Let's look at the next sola, which is sola gratia, grace alone. We've talked before about in the fifth century, The church had condemned this guy named Pelagius as a heretic. Why they condemned Pelagius? Because he maintained that all God required of man was that he simply do what is within yourself. And the implication of that is that salvation becomes something that's intrinsic, something that comes from within rather than extrinsic from without. Pelagius didn't deny grace. Pelagius was actually a fan of grace. He just didn't believe that grace was actually necessary. Man didn't need grace to be obedient to Pelagius. Grace was just kind of the icing on the cake. You could still have cake, you just didn't have the icing, all right? Augustine, on the other hand, he pushed for the necessity of grace. And the church, thankfully, agreed with Augustine, and Pelagianism was formally condemned as a heresy. But as we've talked about before, heresies don't ever really die. They're like cockroaches. They just continue to spring up. And, uh, And so by the medieval church, Pelagianism had reared its ugly head again. It was a little bit more subtle, but it was certainly uh, there. During the Middle uh, Middle Ages, the medieval period, the church was drifting towards Pelagianism as scholars tended to think that salvation was something that God granted when one simply did one's best, when one did what was within them. So they didn't think that, uh, that mankind could actually earn their salvation, which is contra Pelagius, But they did believe that God had bound himself to reward those who did their best, which is Pelagian and actually sounds eerily familiar in America, right? What did you hear growing up? God helps those who, quote, helps themselves, right? That's Pelagianism. And the reformers thought that was the actual implication 
of the medieval Roman Catholic theology. For, uh, for example, Thomas Aquinas, the, the great Roman Catholic scholar, he says, God does not deny grace to the man who does what is in him. And that sounds good, but what's wrong with that? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one is it makes God's grace dependent. It makes God's grace passive. God waits for your first act of obedience, and then he jumps in and he gives you grace. We do our best, and then God does the rest. That's the first problem. The second problem is that it assumes that doing what is in you is actually a good thing. This is why hamartiology, which is the doctrine of, uh, of sin, is so important. In effect, the reformers asked, what good is it to do what is in you if what is in you is all sin? All right? In other words, the more deeply you understand how deep your sin is, the, the more deeply you understand the chasm that is your sin, the more powerful you actually understand what grace is. We don't, uh, we don't honor God when we belittle his grace. And that's exactly what we do when we think, we're not that bad. You and I aren't that bad. People aren't that bad. Humanity isn't that bad. If you're sick, if that's it, you're just sick, spiritually sick. You just need a little bit of medic medication, right? So you get in the car, you drive to the pharmacy. It's not a pleasant experience to drive to the pharmacy when you're super sick, you have the flu or something like that, but you can do it. But if you're dead, if you're not just sick, if you're dead, you go nowhere. You do nothing. You need to be granted new life. Doing what is in you is good if what is in you is good. That's why the reformers thought the church had smuggled plagianism into the back door. Someone who did what was in them gets grace because of something belonging to him apart from grace, right? And that's a problem, right? That's just Pelagianism in sheep's clothing. So the, for the reformers, even our willful obedience is owing to grace. Everything that we have that is good is grace. It's unmerited. It's actually even demerited favor. That, this is why there's also such a push, if you read the reformers, why there's this push for this recovery of, uh, of the doctrine of predestination and election among the reformers because that's the necessary logical implication of total depravity. If you deny unconditional election, you actually have to deny to some degree the historic meaning of total depravity. Because if you really understand total depravity, if you understand that you're dead, you cannot believe. You cannot choose God unless or until you're first made alive. This is why Calvinism is often called the doctrines of grace. Because apart from that way of viewing salvation, your understanding of grace is actually distorted. It's diluted. So the reformers emphasized total depravity and thus they emphasized efficacious grace. Right? Because without it, we are left with pride and self-righteousness. But ironically, without this uh, doctrine, of, without this restoration of grace, there is also this vast lack of assurance of salvation for how in the world could one really know if they've actually done their best? What if you could do better? This is why the third sola, faith alone, was so important. Sola fide, faith alone. We said before, in the Middle Ages, salvation was technically by grace alone and that it wasn't earned but one only got that grace by doing stuff, by the sacraments, by being a good Catholic. So since you had to do things to get grace, a works-based system of salvation had snuck in. This is why you have guys like Tetzel selling indulgences. They are ways to earn God's grace. It's still grace. It's just earned grace. It's merited grace. It's kind of like your kids doing chores and you give them an allowance, right? That allowance might far outweigh the worth of the work that they do, and you're gracious even in giving them an opportunity to make money as a child, but when you tether it to work, it's no longer purely grace. You kind of dilute the grace aspect of it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, I'm just saying it's not then purely gracious. The reformers recognize that in order to truly magnify grace alone, you have to also confess faith alone. Grace alone isn't enough if that grace forces you to do works of earn, uh, to do works in order to earn grace. Why not? Well, because by definition, earned grace isn't grace. 
Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. As Calvin writes, justified by faith is he who excluded from the righteousness of works, grasped the righteousness of Christ through faith and clothed in it appears in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous person. Or question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a 1563 reformed formulation of the Christian faith. How are you righteous before God? The answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Now, unlike grace alone, with the church, which, which uh, the Catholic Church would have confessed, uh, uh, but distorted, the Roman Catholic Church explicitly denied and rejected faith alone, all right? So later in the Counter-Reformation, they'll have this council called the Council of Trent uh, a few years later, and they say this, if anyone says that by faith alone the ungodly are justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to receive the grace of justification and that it is uh, not necessary for a man to be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So this doctrine was at the heart of the Reformation. Nothing less than justification is, itself was at stake in the Reformation. And although the Reformers all agreed in the idea of justification by grace alone through faith alone, they weren't all actually united on how faith and works kind of fit together. But in general, the Reform perspective was that we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which remains alone. True faith for the Reformers was always accompanied by repentance, by love, by works. Westminster Catechism says, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. And this rediscovery of the primacy of, uh, of grace and the primacy of faith revolutionized the church in regards to the assurance of salvation because your assurance suddenly is not grounded in the works that you have done, in the indulgences that you have purchased, but rather in what you have believed, or better yet, in whom you have believed, which brings us to solus Christus, Christ alone. Now when we say that the motto of Christ alone distinguished Protestants from Catholics in the Reformation, that certainly doesn't mean that, uh, that the uh, Catholics rejected Nicene Trinitarianism or Chalcedonian Christology Roman Catholicism is actually completely orthodox in their understanding of God and of Christ. The problem is not the person of Christ, not who Christ is, but rather the work of Christ. What did he actually do? What did he accomplish? That was the Reformation debate uh, regarding solus Christus. According to Roman Catholicism, the grace of Christ was mediated to Christians through this elaborate edifice of priests and sacramental works, which meant that in effect, Christians ended up looking to and trusting in those priests and in those works rather than in Christ alone. Rather than hoping in Christ, we hope in this indulgence certificate that we've purchased. Rather than taking comfort in the promises of Christ, when Christ says that our sins are forgiven, we instead rest in the promises of the priest when he says that our sins are forgiven. So the reformers rejected that distortion of the work of Christ and said that Christ alone is mediator. Not the church, not priests, not Mary or the saints. You don't need the merits of Mary or of the saints. You don't need uh, any of those things. You need the merits of Christ. Why? Because Christ is the one and only mediator. And Christ is the only one who has actually merited anything. As Wingley says, Christ has borne all of our pain and travail. Hence, whoever att uh, attributes to works of, excuse me, works of penance, what is Christ alone, errs and blasphemes God. So the reformer said that you are saved by Christ's merits alone as they are imputed to you, that's Luther, or that you are incorporated into Christ and what belongs to Christ belongs to you, that's Calvin. This needs, means that righteousness from a Protestant perspective, it's outside of you. It's what's called an alien righteousness, right? 
not alien like little green men, but something that's ex, uh, extrinsic, something that's outside of you, something that's not uh, from within. Both Catholics and Protestants hold that you're saved by Christ, but the reformers mean that you have Christ's righteousness and that's it. None of your own and none from the saints. That's solus Christus. Let's look at sola Deo Gloria, last of these five solas. Glory to God alone. As with Christ alone and grace alone, the Roman Catholic Church would not disagree with the slogan sola Deo Gloria. If you ask a medieval Roman Catholic what's the purpose and goal of all things, they would say sola Deo Gloria, all right? So the argument isn't over the words glory to God alone, but the meaning of those words and the actual implications of those concepts. The Catholic Church would say that everything should be done for the glory of God. So what's the problem? Well, they also say that you can do works to merit God's grace. And the problem with that is that if we do a little something, then we get a little glory. The more that you do, the more glory that you get. To the victor go the spoils. Even if I can only contribute 1% to my salvation through sacraments and works of penance or whatever it might be, then that's still 1% of glory that I get and thus 1% of glory that I'm stealing from the one who is rightfully glorious. The reformer said if you're truly dead and if your justification is 100% of Christ and salvation is wholly and completely of grace alone and if you were predestined and elected uh, even to faith itself being a gift from God, then he alone gets all of the glory and you get none, not 1%, not a tenth, not a thousandth of a percent. In other words, these five solas become these five inseparable links in a chain. If you lose one, you kind of lose them all. It isn't, uh, if it isn't grace alone or faith alone, then the result is that we steal God's glory. We end up boasting in ourselves. Not much, just a little bit of boasting in ourselves, but some, and that's the point. We deserve no boasting. We contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. So those are the five solas. And if you notice, there's a common thread throughout those. You see it in the little word sola, which means only or alone. And it applies this concept that is sufficiency. The Reformation is really about sufficiency. Is scripture sufficient? Or do we also need extra biblical revelation? Do we also need papal decrees and tradition in order to know God, to live rightly and to be saved? Is grace sufficient? Or do we also need works? Is faith su uh, sufficient? Or do we also need sacraments? Is Christ sufficient? Or do we also need Mary and the saints and ancient relics? Is the cross sufficient? Or do we also need purgatory and indulgences and a perpetual sacrifice of Christ in mass? And the reformer said, let's cut out the middleman. Let's go straight to the cross. Let's go straight to the gospel. Let's go straight to God himself. So more than just a reformation, this movement is actually a restoration. It's a restoration of the gospel. So the reformation isn't just about Luther or Calvin. It's really about the glory of the triune God and his word and his works. And those are some of the major theological distinctives of the reformation. What about other effects? We'll end with these. On a practical level, there are a number of other uh, results of the reformation Though the Reformation was primarily this theological movement, it also had these profound cultural and political implications uh, as well. Some of those good, some of those bad. We'll do the bad first so we can end with the good because I think the good far outweighs the bad. But as it, uh, as it uh, regards uh, unintended consequences of the Reformation that are negative, I mentioned three here. Number one, secularization. Prior to the Reformation, all of life for all of Western Europe is somehow tethered to the church. But when the reformers sever the ties of the average person from the necessity of the Roman Catholic Church, there is this unintentional consequence of cutting ties to religion itself. We'll see that in the Enlightenment. Culture is no longer filtered entirely through the church. And after the Enlightenment, it's no longer filtered entirely through Christianity. That's the first negative consequence. A second is the disregard of tradition. Now the reformers love tradition. Again, ad fontes was a rallying cry, but there is this subjugation of the role of tradition and that submission results in the subsequent de-emphasis on tradition in later uh, generations. This then leads to isolation and individualism and some of the things that you see in culture today. In the idea of the priesthood of the believer, the seeds 
are laid for a personal interpretation of scripture. I don't need the, the church. I don't need tradition. I don't need Augustine or Calvin or Spurgeon. I just need a glass of wine and a bubble bath and my Bible. And that's all I need in order to know anything and figure something out. So you have this disregard of tradition. You also have disunity, right? That's an obvious one. Prior to the Reformation, there is in Western Europe one and only one option for Christianity. It's like a Tommy boy on an airplane. What are we serving, chicken or chicken, right? Likewise, what are your options for the church? If you're a Christian in Western Europe in the medieval period, your options are Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholicism, that's it. But then even in the first generation of reformers, there is now not only Roman Catholicism, but there's also Lutheranism, and there's Reformed, and there's Anglican, there's even radical reformers. Then in subsequent generations, you have the rise of denominationalism, all right? Choices today are unlimited. It's like an ecclesiological buffet. It's like going to the Cheesecake Factory, right, with their 20 pages of menu. That's kind of the uh, result of the Reformation, this disunity. Now, here's the irony to all of these consequences, that the Reformers themselves would have rejected all of those. They absolutely opposed secularity. They loved tradition. They desire unity. But you might think that the fire which kind of uh, uh, lights the theological darkness, which warms the hearts uh, of those in the 16th century, that it also produces sparks. And those sparks eventually are carried by the winds of, uh, of time only to eventually cause these wildfires uh, elsewhere. So those are some of the negatives. We need to understand those. I think those are important, but at the same time, we shouldn't lament the movement just because it has some negative consequences. Instead, we should stand in gratitude and awe at the blessings, not only the theological blessings, which in and of themselves make the Reformation worth it, but also these practical uh, implications as well. So positive effects of the Reformation in no certain order. We'll go through those quickly. Number one, it restored congregational singing. Congregational singing had been banned. In fact, John Huss was martyred by Roman Catholicism for, among other things, the, quote, heresy of congregational singing, all right? So if you guys sing today, you're gonna get burned. Number two, Bible translations. In the Reformation, there's a recovery of translation efforts into the vernacular. So if you appreciate being able to read the Bible, that's because of the Reformation. Number three, the breakdown of clergy-laity distinctions. You see this in the restoration of the concept of the priesthood of the believer, the recognition that all Christians are saints, not just those who are particularly holy. You even see it liturgically. We've talked about this before. The railing that had formerly separated the clergy from the laity is removed in, uh, in churches. And, uh, and so you see it uh, even architecturally. And uh, the people begin to receive both the bread and the wine which had previously been forbidden for the people to receive the, uh, the wine. And uh, so you see that, uh, you also see the restoration of the primacy of the word of God. With Sola Scriptura came not only this emphasis on uh, Bible translation, but also recovery of the idea that the sermon has center place in the worship service, right? At this point in history, the pulpit began to take center stage. Even architecturally, you have the pulpit moving from the side of stages in churches to the center for that reason. And those sermons are in your spoken language, right? Which is a great thing. Imagine going to church week after week and not be able to understand anything. Some of you may feel like that here at Parkway. <laughs> at least we speak English though. All right, increased literacy. Fifth, because of the emphasis on the written word, there's an increased emphasis on literacy. As Luther wrote, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. As a result, there's this interesting phenomenon in which literacy rates skyrocket in areas where the Reformation had taken hold, whereas in Catholic areas, that's not the case. It lags behind. By 1800, Protestant areas of Europe averaged about 50% literacy, whereas in Italy and other Roman Catholic areas, it was only about 20%. That's just an interesting historical phenomenon. Six, the recovery of the sanctity of common work. We talked about this last week, but one of the things recovered in Protestantism was the idea that all work glorifies God. In order to please God in your work as a blacksmith, that doesn't mean you have to hand out gospel tracts to all of your customers. You can please God by simply making quality horseshoes. 
This then provides sparks that will later erupt in the industrial age and capitalism. Again, in those areas in which the Reformation takes hold, there is going to be much more economic growth than in Catholic areas for the next couple of centuries, partly because of this. Number seven, renewed concern for corporate obligations and duties of service. You have in Protestantism a renewed emphasis on care for widows and orphans and missions and so forth. One of Luther's theses said indulgences elevated earthly wealth above genuine piety and care for the poor. So the Reformation sees this renewal of social concern. For instance, Calvin's Geneva was known for its care of the poor and refugees. And then lastly, this is just the last on this list. There, there are probably dozens of others we could have mentioned, but you have the Reformation of the understanding of the church. For the Roman Catholic, the church is wherever the Pope and the institution of the church is. For the reformers, it was wherever the word of God was rightly preached. Again, you have Bible over tradition. What's interesting is that this means that in the Reformation, there is a battle for Augustine. Both Protestants and Catholics during the Reformation are appealing to Augustine. But in the Reformation, it's Augustine's views on grace and sin that actually went out against his views on the church. And those are just some of the blessings and benefits of the Reformation. Next week, we'll talk about the second most influential reformer, that is John Calvin. For now, let's pray. I apologize we don't have time for Q&A. Feel free to email us in, though. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gift of, uh, of men like uh, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and Philip Melanchthon, and uh, John Calvin, and Thomas Knox, and on and on we could go, these men who were flawed, but at the same time, in spite of their flaws, they were great graces to the church. And so we're grateful for uh, not the coincidence of them uh, coming on the scene, but for your providence in, uh, in ordaining and arranging for them to come and to reform your church. And I pray that you would help us to be simper reformanda, that we might be a people who are willing to examine our traditions in light of your good word. We pray these things that you might be glorified in us. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.